What is up, everybody? This is Jim Mylock, and you're listening to Pot of Fame, the podcast where we break down the careers of former athletes and decide whether or not you're going to call to the hall. On today's podcast, we are focusing on the Hall of Fame induction that took place yesterday for the Baseball Hall of Fame uh, in Cooperstown, New York. Scott Rowland and Fred McGriff had their plaques revealed, gave their speeches, and are now a part of baseball royalty. They do now have plaques in the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, Rowland was selected on his sixth year on the ballot uh, by the Baseball Hall of Fame voters, and Fred McGriff was selected by the Veterans Committee. Uh, But nevertheless, they are both now in the Baseball Hall of Fame. And today I want to cover both of their careers a bit more because with their induction, there has been a lot of talk that Roland and McGriff don't belong in the Hall of Fame. There's a lot of chatter that the Hall of Fame standards continue to go down, that Roland and McGriff are very good players but don't belong among the Babe Ruths, the Hank Aarons, the Willie Mays the Mickey Mantles that have plaques in the Hall of Fame today. And what I'm here to tell you all is I I don't agree with that whatsoever. Uh, and I think Roland and McGriff are both Hall of Famers. Uh, I, I don't think them getting in the Hall of Fame cheapens the Hall of Fame whatsoever. There's a lot of people saying, you know, Roland and McGriff and, and Harold Baines, they're like, they're roping Harold Baines in the same conversation as Roland and McGriff, and I just don't think that's the case whatsoever. So what I want to do on today's podcast is kind of just really explain the case of why Roland and why McGriff belongs in the Hall of Fame. And I'm going to do that in different ways. Uh, so Scott Rowland, uh, I did an episode <laughs> right when this podcast started, episode four uh, on Scott Rowland's Hall of Fame candidacy. I don't think it was the best. It was my early work here on the podcast uh, over three years ago, or just maybe around three years ago, I released that podcast. I like to kind of make his case a little more for him today. And then I recently did, or at least more recently, did a podcast on the Hall of Fame candidacy of Fred McGriff. Uh, I did that back uh, last November with USA Today baseball comments and Hall of Fame voter Bob Nightingale. Episode 134, we talked about Fred McGriff's career, his his Hall of Fame candidacy. So I'm first going to talk about Roland Bit, and then I'm going to actually just replay about a 30-minute conversation I had with Bob Nightingale about Fred McGriff, uh, you know, last year. So that's kind of going to be today's podcast, talk first about Roland, and then replay my conversation with Bob Nightingale about Fred McGriff. Uh, But before I do that, I do want to just read the plaques uh, for both McGriff and Scott Roland. So uh, Fred McGriff's plaque actually has no – he. There was like, what team was his plaque going to have on his hat? There's actually no logo on Fred McGriff's plaques uh, for his hat. He played for a number of different teams and he made a big impact on a number of teams. So he went in just logoless, which I think is fair. Uh, again, he played for Toronto, San Diego, Atlanta, Tampa Bay, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles. And I think a lot of people wanted him to have a uh, Atlanta, you know, Braves logo, an A's, <clears throat> a Braves logo on his hat. But again, he had really good spurts for a number of other teams. I think for Fred McGriff, I think they got it right. So Fred McGriff's uh, plaque, Crime Dog's plaque reads like this. This is word for word. I'm not making anything up here. Crush the ball with consistency for 19 seasons using smooth left-handed swing to amass 493 home runs and 1,550 RBIs hit 30 or more home runs 10 times, the first to do so for five different teams, finished among his league's top five in long balls and OPS in seven straight seasons, 1988 to 1994, topping the AL in home runs in 1989 and the NL in 1992. Delivered heroics as cleanup hitter for 1995 World career postseason games, three-time Silver Slugger at first base, and five-time All-Star or 1994 All-Star Game MVP honors. So that's Fred McGriff's plaque. Then Scott Rowland's plaque, 
uh, is this. And Scott Rowland did have a Cardinals hat uh, on his plaque. So even though he played for Philly, which I think of him more as a Philly, but played for Philly, played for St. Louis, played for Toronto and Cincinnati, he does go in with a St. Louis Cardinals hat, as I think he should. So this is his plaque. Paired elite glove work with formidable bat to become a dominant two-way threat at third base, never appearing at any other position in his big league career. Followed a unanimous 1997 NL Rookie of the Year season in Philadelphia with first of his eight gold glove awards in 1998. Blasted three home runs at NLCS to help Cardinals win the 2004 pennant and two years later led St. Louis to the World Series title, batting 421 in the five-game set. Seven-time All-Star and intelligent base runner retires one of only three third basemen with 300 home runs, 500 doubles, and 100 stolen bases. So that's Scott Rollins' plaque. And I got to say, anytime they have these random, like, 300 home run, 500 double, 100 stolen bases, it's, it's funny to me, but, hey, that's on his plaque. To me, I don't know how you can read either of these plaques and, and think, you know, Scott Rollins or McGriff doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. McGriff, as many home runs as Lou Gehrig. Scott Rowland, one of the best defensive third baseman of all time and also a very good bat uh, at the hot corner. One of the best third basemen I've ever seen. Again, I I don't understand why there's controversy around this. I kind of feel silly having to do this podcast. Originally, I had a normal podcast scheduled for you today, but the chatter about Roland McGriff not belonging in the Hall of Fame was enough where I was like, I have to, I have to kind of defend these guys because I believe strongly both of them belong in the Hall. So again, I'm going to start with Scott Rowland, and then I'm going to bring on Bob Nightingale uh, from, you know, previous conversation I had with him for him and I to discuss uh, Fred McGriff. So that's what we have for you today. I hope you enjoy it. First. So first, let's talk about Scott Rowland. All right. So Scott Rowland, uh, again, this was his sixth year on the ballot. Uh, he got 76.3% of the vote. So just made it into the Hall of Fame which is not that hard to believe because he was a third baseman for his entire career. And third basemen just don't see the love from the Hall of Fame. He was just the 18th third baseman to be elected into the Hall of Fame and only the ninth third baseman ever elected by the writers. Only nine third basemen have been elected by the writers. And in the last 30 years, only Wade Boggs in 2005 and Chipper Jones in 2018 have been elected into the Hall of Fame as third basemen. So again, to start here, third basemen just don't get much respect. And maybe that's why Roland is a controversial pick and people think he's cheapening the Hall of Fame. I, again, I don't think this is at all. He he won eight gold gloves. He's one of the best third basemen of all time defensively. Only three third basemen have more. Brooks Robinson, of course, who had 16, just ridiculous. Mike Schmidt had 10. And Nolan Arenado has 10 who I think when he retires will be a Hall of Famer too, but fourth most with eight gold gloves. And if you look at like his advanced metrics, it's not just he won gold gloves because he was popular. Basically every advanced metric paints him as one of the best defensive third baseman of all time. And baseball references career defensive runs above average. He ranks third all time just behind Brooks Robinson and actually Adrian Beltre. And we're going to talk about Adrian Beltre a little later in the pod. I talked about how he was good both at the glove and the bat. If you care about OPS plus at all, if you look at the most seasons with the gold glove and an 120 OPS plus at third base, Mike Schmidt had 10 of those seasons. Scott Rowland had eight of those seasons and Nolan Arenado had six of those seasons. So Rowland second there. Most seasons with, again, a gold glove and 120 OPS plus at third base. I think that says something. If you like advanced metrics, Scott Rowland's kind of your guy. He grades out like the average Hall of Fame third baseman. If you look at the average Hall of Fame third baseman, their war, their seven-year peak war, their jaws, their war per 162 games, Rowland's above average across all of those. He has 70, a 70.1 career war. There's not many players in baseball history across all positions that have over a 70 war that aren't in the Hall of Fame. Most of those players that have over a 70 war that aren't in the Hall of Fame are tied to steroids, which Roland never, never was at all. And he was a guy who, you know, didn't play in as many games as maybe you would have liked. He had a 17-year career and he was hurt a lot, but still his counting stats 
are, are nothing to overlook. You know, he got over 2,000 hits, 2,077 hits. He had 517 doubles. That's sixth most ever by a third baseman. He had 316 home runs, just under 1,300 RBIs, 899 walks. Like his counting stats for the number of games he played. He only played in 2,038 games, just had about 8,500 plate appearances. For that many plate appearances, those numbers, again, 2,077 hits, 517 doubles, 316 home runs, under 1,300 RB, just under 1,300 RBIs. Those are well above, well above a third baseman, a good third baseman in baseball history. He's not the best hitter of all time by any means in baseball history at third base, but I think he's un, like he's underlooked when it comes to his back. Because again, his glove, I don't think anyone's going to argue with me. He's one of the best third baseman with a glove of all time. He's the best I personally believe I've seen with a glove at third base. And again, him and Nolan, Nolan Arenado, I think a lot of people would say uh, Nolan. I think that's completely fine. Nolan's a wizard at third. But Roland is right there with him. He's Roland was an elite athlete, an elite athlete at third. But again, going to the bat, I think the bat's like, you know, he wasn't that great of a hitter. I want to compare him to two people here. Uh, Adrian Beltre and George Brett. Kansas City, or Kansas City Royal fans just freaked out, but hear me out here. So Scott Rowland versus Adrian Beltre. Beltre, one of the best third basemen of my lifetime as well. When he gets up for the Hall of Fame in, in a few years, he will be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um, but let's look at Rowland versus Beltre. So Beltre played about 900 more career games than him. So he's going to beat Rowland in a lot of the counting stats quite favorably. And again, Adrian Beltre, he's a part, like, this guy's a sure ballot, first ballot Hall of Famer. Sure first ballot Hall of Famer. 3,166 hits. He's a 3,000 hit guy, right? 477 home runs. 1,077 RBIs. Like, again, all-timer here. 636 doubles. He's one of the best hitters ever. But if you look at your slash line, right? Batting average, on-base percentage, slugging, OPS, OPS+. plus. Roland beats him in on-base percentage handily beats him in slugging percentage OPS and OPS plus and even though Beltre had what is this over 2,500 more plate appearances Roland still had more walks than Beltre Roland was a better defender than Beltre and a, a big knock against Roland right is he wasn't a star right he wasn't wasn't winning all the accolades, wasn't the star. No one talked about him. Roland was a, a seven-time All-Star, eight-time gold glove. Beltre was a four-time All-Star, five-time gold glove. Beltre is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, again, as he should. But Scott Roland beats Beltre in a number of different categories here. And even though Beltre played a lot longer, Roland had three more All-Star appearances and three more gold gloves. I, I don't think that can be overlooked. And now bear with me more. George Brett, one of the best third basemen of all time, one of the best players in MLB history. Again, the, uh, George Brett had over 3,000 more plate appearances than Roland. And because of those 3,000 plate appearances and George Brett just being an all-time hitter, George Brett had over 3,000 hits, right? 665 doubles. But if you look at home runs, George Brett had one more home run than Scott Rowland, even though he had about 3,000 more plate appearances. If you look at walks, Brett just had 200 more walks than Rowland, even with 3,000 more plate appearances. Batting average, Brett kills Rowland, but on base percentage, Brett's 0.05 higher. Slugging percentage, Rowland actually beats Brett by 0.03. OPS, Brett beats Rowland by 0.02. These numbers are very, very similar. If not, Roland has a slight edge. Roland was a better power hitter. Yet, Brett is looked at as one of the best players of all time. And Roland, people are saying Roland doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame. And Roland was a way better defensive third baseman than George Brett. Am I saying Scott Roland's better than Brett or Adrian Beltre? I'm not. I'm not. I think they're both better than Roland. But to say Roland doesn't belong in the Hall of Fame, to say Roland cheapens Cooperstown, I think is 
absolutely silly. I think Roland more than belongs in Cooperstown. I think he's a top 12 third baseman of all time. And if baseball has been around since the 1870s, right? MLB has been around since the 1870s. And I'm talking about Roland being one of the top 12 third baseman of all time. Then yes, he should definitely be in the baseball hall of fame. And maybe he was never the biggest star, but from a, a accolade standpoint, he has enough from a career numbers. He has enough. He played very well in the postseason, which I think gets overlooked. That World Series, no, he didn't win the MVP, but he was a big part of that 2006 Cardinals World Series team. Bad 421 that World Series and played great third base. So Scott Rowland, congratulations on the Hall of Fame. I'm sorry that people are acting like you don't belong, but whether it's an advanced metric type deal, he, he belongs. If it's pure stats, accolades, he belongs. If it's eye test. Again, he more than belongs. I, I talked about on the pod three years ago when I did Roland originally. I pretended to be Scott Roland when I was playing baseball. I was a third baseman a lot of time. I pretended to be Scott Roland because of how smoothly he played the corner, how athletic he was playing third base. He was one of my favorite players growing up. I emulated him, and I could not be more happy He's getting in. Even as a Cardinal, I'm a Cubs guy. Even as a Cardinal, I'm so happy for him. So congratulations to Scott Rowland. And also shout out to a fellow, you know, he played baseball in Indiana, my alma mater. So I have a lot of ties to Rowland. I don't really feel like, though, that makes me biased here. Uh, the numbers are clear cut. I'm not reaching here. I don't think you really have to reach. And if you only think the Hall of Fame's for, like, Mike Schmidt, and Brooks Robinson and George Brett, like, I don't know what to tell you, but everyone's not going to be those players. Like, those are the, we're talking about like the best third baseman of all time. That's fine. But if you're only going to let those guys in, the, the Hall of Fame will never grow. Um, Scott Rowland was one of the best players when he played at third base. He's one of the best third basemen of the last 30 years. And again, he joins Wade Boggs and Chipper Jones as one of three third basemen on the last 30 years to be elected. I think. One third baseman being elected by the voters is fair. Um, so, so that's kind of my Scott Rowland case there. I think it's ridiculous. People are are shitting on him, to be honest, and um, couldn't be happier more for him that that he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. So that's my Scott Rowland spiel. Um, again, when it comes to Fred McGriff, recently did an episode again last November. Uh, it's a really good conversation with Bob Nightingale, and it is uh, on the shorter end. I think it's about half an hour, so I'm going to play that next. Uh, so in, enjoy that if you haven't heard it before. If you've listened to it before, it's nothing new. So if you listened before, you could probably move on with your day here now. But uh, all I want to say about Fred McGriff real quick, in case you don't want to listen to that next half an hour with Bob Nightingale, Fred McGriff someone who never got over 40% of the vote. I always thought that was ridiculous. He, yes, he never hit 50 home runs or 60 home runs, but he led the league twice. He was always, you know, in the top 10, it seemed like for home runs and RBIs. He was a slugger. He had 493 home runs, which Lou Gehrig has 493 home runs. People said if he had seven more, more and he was in the 500 club, he, 500 home run club, he'd be an automatically. That's silly. If you really think seven home runs should determine whether you're in or not. Uh, Fred McGriff deserved to be voted in by the, the writers. I think the steroid air really puts, uh, unfortunately, Fred McGriff's totals in uh, in a negative light or just not in as uh, good of light as it should be. I think if Fred McGriff comes along and plays in the 70s and 80s, retires in the early 90s, he gets in the Hall of Fame the first couple of ballots. I think he just was hitting home runs at a, a great clip, but was overshadowed by Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Barry Bonds, and everyone else under the sun, whether it be Greg Vaughn, Brady Anderson, hitting 50-plus, 60-plus, in Barry Bonds' case, in Mark McGuire's case, 70-plus, and just made McGriff's, you know, leading the league in home runs in the, with home run totals in the 30s look less impressive. But McGriff did it for a very long time, has well above, you know, to me, Hall of Fame power numbers, uh, and belongs in the Hall of Fame. He's a little lay on the accolade side, uh, but numbers-wise, he's a Hall of Famer. 
uh, and and he he to me he clearly met the the threshold to get in. So uh, again, this is my conversation with Bob Nightingale, Hall of Fame voter. Uh, so enjoy. And again, if you're going to tune out now, I will talk to you next week. But here's my conversation about Fred McGriff with Bob Nightingale. All right. I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, USA Today baseball columnist and Hall of Fame voter, Bob Nightingale. Bob, how are you doing today? Yeah, doing great. Thanks, Jim. So, Bob, we are talking about someone who has been in the news recently. Um, last week, Fred McGriff was elected as one of the eight players to make up the contemporary baseball air ballot. Um, this is the new committee that has been formed with is really looking at players that mainly contributed to baseball after 1980. There was eight players elected to that ballot. Fred McGriff, who is our co- topic of conversation day, is one of those eight players. But I will tell you, Bob, it's a it's a pretty stacked lineup. Uh, you know, Barry Bonds, Clemens, Dale Murphy, Rafael Palmero, Kurt Schilling, Albert Bell, and Don Mattingly all are on that ballot with Fred McGriff. And that ballot will actually be, you know, voted on December 4th and, and announced later that day. So within the next three weeks, we will know whether or not, you know, Fred McGriff is elected to the Hall of Fame. And today what we're going to do is talk about his career, his Hall of Fame can see, um, and whether or not we think he should get in, whether they think he'll get in this year. Uh, Bob, the first thing I'm going to ask you, though, at the top here is when you hear the name Fred McGriff or it gets, he gets brought up in conversation, what's the first thing that's come to your mind? Uh, just consistency. I mean, the most consistent, you know, one of the most consistent power hitters we've ever seen. Uh, so I'm going to say every year you looked up, it was 30 home runs, 100 whippies, a guy who was uh, played the game clean, no, uh, you know, no steroid use, no, you know, you know, HGH, any of that stuff. And, uh, but just a, uh, uh, you know, just kind of a role model too. I mean, he was the guy everybody gravitated to. Uh, I was able to cover him when he was with the San Diego Padres after he got traded for the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, after he got traded over, the Padres uh, traded for Gary Sheffield. Uh, Sheffield was kind of a troubled player at the time, kind of run out of Milwaukee. It wasn't for Fred McGriff telling him, hey, you're living, you're going to move next door to me. I'm going to take care of you. I don't think Gary Sheffield has that kind of career either. Yeah. No, I mean, the consistency you brought up is what I think most people – Think of when they think of McGriff, 10 seasons with 30 plus homers, eight seasons with over hundred RBIs. The thing that's interesting, right? He, he was almost, I don't want to say too consistent, but you know, home run wise, never hit over 40, led the league twice, but never hit over 40. Every single year was between 31 and 37 home runs. And sure enough, he was always driving in hundred RBIs, but it was always just over it. 101 to 107 every time he was smacking 100. He never had one of those 130, 140 RBI seasons, but he was always consistently every year, 30, just about 30, 34 home runs, you know, just 101, 103 RBIs. And he was that model consistency for a very long time. Now, McGriff played for a number of teams, you know, Tampa, Atlanta, Toronto, Padres, my Cubbies, and even the Dodgers for a year. I think most of my listeners know when you get in the Hall of Fame, there is a hat placed on top of, you know, the player's head. If McGriff were to get in, what hat would you put on him, Bob? What do you, where do you think? Because again, he had, everywhere he played, he was, again, consistently good. What, what hat do you think would go on McGriff if he were to get in? Uh, well, I think he'd be wearing an Atlanta cap. I really do. Uh, that'd be the only one he would choose, either that or, that or no cap. I would think Atlanta, and that's where he was, uh, you know, so great. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, great everywhere. But that's when, you know, that's where he won the World Series. That's where he you know, really stood out. So I would be, you know, he's a special assistant now also for Atlanta. So I'd be surprised if it wasn't, if it wasn't that team. Yeah, I, I would say Atlanta as well. Um, I was surprised when I look back, he only played five years there. It seemed longer, but as you said, he did win that World Series in '95 with the Braves, and had a had a you know had a great postseason for them that that really helped them. You know, one of their best, if not their best hitter, um, on those Braves teams that that again did win that championship in '95. I do want to go to our next segment, Bob. We call this that memorable moment. 
And what we try to do here, and you can be very liberal here, it's if you had to pick one moment's career, and this could be a game, this could be a single play, could be a playoff series, it could be a postseason run, an entire season if you really wanted to be. But what would you say McGriff's most memorable moment of his career was? Well, it certainly had to be the 95 World Series, just kind of, uh, you know, taking that team on his back, finally uh, gained him that, that that first, you know, championship, uh, you know, kind of carrying that team. I mean, without him, you know, they don't win a World Series. Uh, the flip end, I think we'll always remember, you know, back in the, uh, you know, 90, uh, was it 97 when they uh, lost to the uh, Miami Marlins in that strike zone by Eric Gregg was so outrageous. It just uh, the look of disbelief when he's getting, uh, when Fred McGlish getting called out uh, on pitches that are uh, about a foot outside the strike zone. You know? <laughs> I always remember that as remember that as well. Yeah, no, in his postseason, I mean, not just 95, 97, I mean, he was a great postseason player, player for his career. Honestly, every year he played, again, this is a common theme when you're talking about McGriff. He was consistent. He's not someone that disappeared in the playoffs. He kind of did just what he was doing at times better than the regular season. And for his career, 303 hitter in the postseason, 10 home runs, 37 RBIs. And in that 95 run, uh, as you kind of mentioned, he he really was their most consistent and maybe best hitter of the playoffs, um, you know, in the, in the world series itself, he had two home runs, you know, two doubles, three RBIs, um, you know, against the Rockies in that first series, he bad three thirty three with two home runs and six RBIs. And in the NLCS, he bad four thirty eight with four doubles. He was consistently dependable and someone you'd always want, you know, in the batter's box. If you, if you were needing some runs, McGriff kind of was that guy. Uh, I do want to go to our next segment here, Bob. We call this and twins. And what we try to do here, um, you look at Cooperstown today, you look at all the plaques in there and whether it be, you know, this player reminds me of McGriff because of the style and the way they played or maybe it's strictly a numbers case, or maybe it's a little of both. But Bob, if you were to look at Cooperstown today, who do you say is the closest twin to Fred McGriff? I'm going to go with Willie McCovey. Uh, you look at their stats, they're almost identical. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, McCovey's in the uh, Hall of Fame. Uh, you know, McCovey had a couple of 40 home run uh, seasons. Uh, so if, you know, Fred was more consistent, you know, to both, you know, the All Star. Uh, games. I think Fred was five. Uh, McCovey was six times. And just, uh, you know, both consistent top 10 MVP guys. Uh, you know, Fred McGriff finished in the top 10 six times in his career. Uh, you know, eight times he had MVP votes. You know, and similar also to uh, Stargell was a, uh, I mean, uh, uh, Stargell McCovey, I should say, but uh, particularly McCovey. So uh, I, was, I would look at both those guys, but I, if I would say, Here's a Hall of Famer. Uh, I go just like just like Willie McCovey. McCovey had two 40, 40 home run seasons, but he wasn't didn't have those uh, all those. You know, when they have a uh, 10, 30 run home run seasons, uh, you know, eight eight times uh, 100 ribby seasons, 12 times 90 or more ribbies. So just that consistency, but you know, pretty pretty close to uh, McCovey. So we have identical answers. I had McCovey and Starchill down here. Um, and, you know, those are guys who um, I feel like the Hall thought those were clear Hall of Famers. You know, McCovey gets in his very first year on the ballot. I, I believe Starchill did as well. And, you know, if you look at their career numbers for both McCovey and Starchill compared to McGriff, you, I mean, it is almost identical. And if you look at slash lines, McGriff really kind of beats them both out. What they both possess that McGriff you know, didn't have what were those MVP series or MVP awards. But other than that, I mean, again, very consistent, same kind of careers. I, I mean, Bob, why, why does someone like McCovey or Stargell get in kind of with, uh, you know, no, no real problems at all where McGriff outside of his final year on the ballot, where he just got under 40% was always hovering in the 20%. What, what separates McGriff from McCovey and Stargell? Because when you look at numbers, that doesn't seem to really be the case 
other than the MVP, what what, what is it? Well, I think it was simply, uh, Jim, because uh, McGriff played the steroid era. So uh, McCovey and Stargell did not. Uh, with McGriff, when he was hitting his 30 and 100, you know, year after year, you'd have guys, uh, Bond hitting 73 home runs, you know, McGuire hitting 70, you know, Sosa hit inning over 60. I mean, even uh, Louis Gonzalez had 57 one year. So just the, uh, the stories were out, so out of control at the time. So a lot of times, you know, uh, for Emigrant's numbers would get dwarfed because they just weren't outlandish, cartoonish type numbers. So he, uh, I think he really got punished just by playing that era and by playing clean. Hey, if Emigrant had used steroids, he would have hit 50, 60 home runs a year too, just like the other guys. Yeah. And, and, and like, you know, for McCovey, they're like, well, he was in the 500. And this is going to, people hear about this McGriff all the time. I want to hear your take, though. Like, McCovey got to the 500 home run club, 521. Stargell was 475, so he didn't get the club. I hear a lot of people tell me sometimes, you know, McGriff ends at 493 home runs. He tried to, you try to hang on to get to 500 with Tampa, but just really kind of lost it. And, I mean, he was four years old at the time. Never got there. Some people are like, well, if McGriff got to 500, they, they'd have to put him in. He would have been in. What do you think, Bob? If he seven, it seems silly to me, but seven more home runs, if he lands on a perfect 500, does that change what happened when he was on the ballot? Do you think people really would have been like, well, he hit 500, we have to let him in now? I think it hurt him at the very beginning of the ballot. I'm not sure about the end. I think people's minds start you know, changing. Okay. The seven seven home runs make that big a difference, but 500 is such a magical number. I think it, you know, did play a factor. But I think the real factor, Jim, was the fact that he bounced around with so many different teams. Mm. There wasn't one team that openly campaigned for him. I mean, we see so many teams now, you know, campaigning for their own players and things like that. And the fact that, uh, you know, Fred bounced around with the five six different teams, uh, yet 30 home runs. Uh, or more with five different teams. You know, only he and Sheffield have ever done that. But I, I think that hurt him by, by playing with so many teams. Yeah, no, and and, that, and that's kind of a perfect segue into the final segment here. We call this court. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. And what we do here is again we talk about the pros and cons, and and we've uh, his Hall of Fame cans, and we've kind of been doing that already. But you know, when we when we look at McGriff's numbers right I, I feel we keep talking about how consistent he is and the hall of fame rewards long careers that that put up numbers this is not the football hall of fame or the basketball hall of fame where you can have three or four peak seasons and then you're you're you can be in if you were great enough the baseball hall of fame rewards you know unless you're a, a sandy koufax or a, a ralph kiner or a joe dimaggio it rewards players that play for a very long time and put up great numbers and are great when they're playing and when I look at McGriff, I, I mean, 30th all-time in home, or I'm sorry, 29th all-time in home runs. Everyone that's ahead of him on that list is in the Hall of Fame that isn't tied to PEDs. That's separate. And then if you're looking at ribbies, just RBIs, 47th all-time. Everyone ahead of him that's not tied to PEDs, they're in the Hall of Fame. So when you're talking about just strictly counting numbers, McGriff seems like he has the home run totals, the RBI totals. He was a great postseason player, all of this stuff. Usually the Hall of Fame rewards putting up these kind of numbers for a long time and being successful for a long time for most players. It did not reward McGriff. Now you've brought up, he bounced around a lot. You brought up the steroid air, but still these numbers put him among the all-time greats. Is there, is there anything else, but we haven't mentioned yet, like why was putting up all these career numbers not good enough for McGriff, but it's kind of been good enough for everyone that's come before him? Yeah, I, mean, I really just believe the uh, he never had, because he never had that big, you know, fifty home run season or you know, didn't even have forty for that matter. Uh, but you know, neither did Hank Aaron. I mean, Hank Aaron wasn't having a fifty home run seasons either. So I, I just think because he was so consistent, uh, it's almost like you know, if you go to the award winners, like say, uh, uh, Manager of the Year, uh, you're not going to win Manager of the Year when you when you're consistently good. You got to be a, a have a lousy season and bounce back. McGriff never had that, that season. So it was always like, oh, look at that fabulous season. He's come back player of the year. That never happened. So as, as funny as it sounds, 
it's almost like he's getting penalized for his uh, great consistency. Yeah, no, it, it does. And it's, it's, it's a little, again, for the baseball hall of fame, it does seem odd to me that he does get kind of knocked for that. And I think, as you said earlier, I think being in the steroid era does kind of murder, like muddle his accomplishments. Again, you look back, he did lead the league technically. I mean, not technically, he did lead the league in home runs in 1989 and 1992. But you look at the totals and it's, you know, 36 home runs in 89 with Toronto and then 35 home runs in San Diego. I mean, that's, <laughs> I think the one season Bonds had 39th, the all-star break. So those numbers, <laughs> the, you know, right. Those numbers, he led the league, his league in home runs that year, but they look like, I mean, you ask a kid and I, I grew up in the nineties. You ask me in 1998, if 35 home runs is a lot, I probably tell you it's not. But then you look at now, in retrospect, all those players, as you said, I think earlier, McGriff was taking PDs because we definitely know he wasn't because he was basically the same size the day he came in, the day he left. You know, he would have been putting up those numbers as well, and, and he would have got way past that 500 mark, probably would have pushed 600. His ribbies would have been up too, and maybe we're having a different conversation. But the other thing I kind of want to talk about here before we get to final verdict is when we're looking at players, right, it's, it's good to look at all time. How does he compare? But also contemporaries, you know, when he was playing, who were the other first baseman in the league? Was he one of the top first basemen in the league? And it does get kind of murky here because of PDs, but names I was drawing out that were first basemen when he was playing are, are you know, people like McGuire, Jeff Bagwell, Rafael Palmero, Frank Thomas, uh, even players like Carlos Delgado and Todd Helton. During his career, Bob, because Fred, again, was super consistent, but never had these like, you know, 47, 48 home run seasons or, you know, 130 RBI seasons like a Helton would have had, a Delgado had. If you're looking as contemporaries of when he played, so against Thomas, McGuire, Paul Marrow, Bagwell, Helton, Delgado, where, where does McGriff rank to you among those guys? What, would you have said he was a top three, four first baseman of his air, or where do you have him ranking? Yeah, it's only top three for sure. Remember now, from, from 1989 to 1997, he hit the third most home runs of any player in baseball. The only guys who had more were McGuire and, uh, and Bonds, who, of course, were retained by the uh, PEDs. So that's how you know, great of a player he was. I'd certainly put him ahead of uh, Palmer, uh, not Palmero. Certainly put him ahead of a Jeff Bagwell. I'd certainly put him ahead of, uh, you know, some of the DHs too. You know, whether it's a, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, Harold Baines, you know, who played some first base. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, more than uh, Edgar Martinez. Uh, you know, Palmero was very good. Obviously, tainted by the steroids, he was fantastic. Uh, you know, Thomas had some monster monster numbers, but primarily DH. But you're just talking about, you know, playing at first base. I'd certainly say he's one of the top three first basemen uh, of his era because uh, he wasn't, you know, he played a whole lot more first base than he did DH. Yeah. No, and, and, and I would say so too. And again, some of those names, like you talked about Bagwell. Bagwell's in the Hall of Fame already. Like, he he's in the conversation and he's he's definitely one of the best of that era, which had great first baseman. The last thing I wanted to get to here was around okay, we say consistency, 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 and that's all he was. That's Fred McGriff. Peak though does matter, and you do like to see players in the Hall of Fame do have a season or two you can point to saying, you know, that was his MVP season. This is the season he really tore. You know, the cover off the ball, he drove in this many runs, etc. McGriff's peak, again, you can point to like 37 home runs one year, 107 RBIs one year. It never jumps off the screen or anything like that. It's nothing you can hang your hat on, I guess. Do you think those lack of peak seasons hurt him? And, and Bob, do you consider someone in the Hall of Fame has to have a peak season or two that really stands out to be considered for Cooperstown? Or is being consistent good enough in your eyes? Oh, I think just being consistent. Uh, you know, you go back to nineteen, uh, you know, ninety four when that when that season was cut short. He had thirty four home runs and ninety four ribbies. He would have had well over forty home runs that year. He might have won the uh, the MVP that season. Uh, he was he was going great guns. So uh, you know, hey, Tony Gwynn was very consistent too, 
you know, if you say, okay, what's Tony Gwynn's great season? You know, hey, you kind of you know blend them together. You know, uh, some of these guys, I don't care if you're talking about an Al Kane line back in the day or what, but I think, you know, you, you got to be a mile of consistency. Uh, you know, when we put in a guy like, you know, some of these guys like uh, Larry Walker, he missed a lot of time with injuries. He wasn't playing. And he still got in. And here's guys like, you know, we mentioned Todd Helton as well. Hey, they played at Coors Field. Uh, you know, if Fred McGriff played at Coors Field, you know, during his, uh, you know, home career, he might have had 600 home runs. Yeah. No, and, and that 94, I'm glad you brought that up, actually. The 94 season, obviously, shortened by the strike. He only played 113 games. In those 113 four, or 13 games, 34 home runs, 94 RBIs, a 318 batting average. That would have been his year. He probably would have hit well over 40, probably would have hit well over 107 RBIs, which he never did another year and had a 300 batting average. A big what if, you know, if that season isn't a strike, Bob, that 94 season plays out, McGriff gets these totals. Again, it sounds silly because it's just, you know, one season that was shortened a bit. But if that season never gets, you know, shortened and he plays that full season and he puts up you know 44 home runs let's say 115 rbis does that change the way we were looking at his hall of fame can see when he was on the ballot do you think you know he has you know he gets in in that the first 10 years if that 94 season can go to completion yeah that's think you're talking about a uh you know a, a monster year there he finished what eighth mvp you know he would have been higher and uh you know, you know, those years before that too, when he finished you know, fourth in ninety two in the MVP race. So I was covering with the with the pod race and the uh you know uh you know fourth the, the next year. It's just a uh you know to be in the you know get MVP votes that many years, you know, eight times, it shows you just how how solid he's been. But yeah, I agree. If he had that one big season like you're talking about in, in ninety four, ninety five that stuff cut short. Uh you know, maybe certainly he would have over 500 home runs. So I mean, that would have uh, you know pushed him over the top as well. And Bob, do you think his advanced metric, like again today, a lot of people love. I'm not a lot. Most people love talking about WAR, love talking about Jaws, love talking about some more advanced metrics. With McGriff, doesn't rate out that well on that. You know, 52.6 career WAR, which if you look at the average first baseman in the Hall of Fame. Um, is a bit below the average first baseman is about 66 war. How much stock do you take into war jaws, all these, you know, advanced metrics when you're looking at someone's hall of fame can see, does that matter to you at all? Does it matter just a little, are you more of an eye test guy? I mean, how, how big of a role does that play when you're looking at a candidate? Yeah, for me, it's the eye test and just the, the pure numbers, not the war. I mean, the war is just so flawed. I mean, I think a couple of years ago, uh, they did a you know war on the best defensive catchers in baseball. Yanni Molina, who might be the greatest defensive catcher of all time, was in the top half. There are just too many things wrong with it. You know, when you're watching guys that, uh, I mean, you, you would, the war would have you think that Derek Jeter is the worst defensive shortstop of all time. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> here is a uh, Hall of Famer who had to, you know, had to position himself just like Ripken. So, no, I think, a, uh, you know, to go back in time like that, you know, I don't think that's right. And I think, you know, nowadays it's like with, you know, with the war and stuff, we're, you know, talking about, we're, you know, we're getting so excited about guys getting walks. Well, a lot of times guys get walks, all you do is clogging the base pass. You know, you got to swing the bat. And his job was to produce runs, score runs and drive them in. And that's what he did. I mean, that's why we have a scoreboard for is to, uh, you know, get teams wins and that's how you win games. And he was on a winning team a lot. And he was a big part of that. You know, I mean, when you have guys from Chipper Jones, the Tom Glavin, the Maddox, you know, con- you know, Smoltz constantly saying this guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, you know, it's a crime that he isn't. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, you know, the, uh, since I've been on the Hall of Fame, you know, committee or, you know, casting ballots for the Hall of Fame, I thought the two guys we missed out on the most were, was Fred McGriff and, uh, and Jack Morris who eventually got into the, the veterans committee. Yeah. So Bob, final questions here for you. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm going to answer them as well. I'm going to let you go first though. And you kind of just answer the first one. One, you know, would, 
do you think McGriff belongs in the Hall of Fame? Do you think he's a Hall of Famer? And then my second question to you is going to be, do you think he gets into the Hall of Fame this year? Yeah, I absolutely believe he's a Hall of Famer. I believe, uh, you know, uh, of all the years of voting, the writers' votes, that they got that one wrong. He, he deserves to be in. You had to be around him. You had to see uh, his consistency, what he meant to a team, how guy, how he made players better, his own teammates, uh, and what he meant for the game. I mean, he was a uh, an idol, a uh, role model. You can't find one bad thing to say about Trevor Griff. It's just what he stood for. Uh, second part, I, I think he gets to the Hall of Fame uh, on December 4th. Uh, I think the ballot is set up that is perfect for him. Uh, people aren't going to put in Bonds and Clemens and uh, Palmero right away just because of the steroid uh, stuff. Uh, guys like Natalie have been there you know, on that ballot uh, forever and, and never got in. So I, I'd be surprised or might even be stunned if Fred McGriff isn't uh, in the Hall of Fame on the night of December 4th. Yeah, I'm uh, boring enough. I'm agreeing with you on both of these questions. Um, do I think McGriff's a Hall of Famer? If you're top 30 in home runs, top 50 in RBIs, everyone ahead of you is in already, unless you're tied to PDs and McGriff's not. I don't see how you can keep him out. He has the numbers that the Hall of Fame always looks for, as well as, I mean, he did it for a very long time. And, you know, even items that are a little more advanced, like OPS or OPS Plus, he consistently had high levels of that his whole career. Um, one of the better offensive players, I think, of you know the last 30 years. Uh, do I think he'll get in on this ballot? I, I couldn't agree with you more, too. I think he will get on the contemporary baseball air ballot. Um, you know, I look at the other first baseman on here, Don Mattingly. I, I think Don Mattingly was a great player in the 80s, but I think Fred McGriff's resume way outshines him. The other players on here, I don't. I don't think Bonds and Clemens and Palmero maybe get in yet. Albert Bell, I, great player, but not McGriff's caliber. Um, I, I think McGriff gets in. So I, I think this, you know, this podcast is going to drop and then I think he'll get in and, and then McGriff will be in Cooperstown where I, I feel like he rightfully belongs. And it sounds like you do too. So um, we will have yeah, to absolutely. see. Bob, we'll have to see what happens. A uh, question for you though, contemporary baseball air ballot. So we, we the or my listeners and myself do not know who's making up that committee do are you aware and is that is that being released anytime soon yeah it'll be released uh uh sometime probably a, a week or two maybe two weeks before the vote comes out it's a 16 person committee you have to have 12 of the 16 votes to get in uh the voters are only allowed to uh, vote for four four players maximum I think McGriff's the only one that gets in this ballot. I really do. Mm. Uh, you know, we've had ballots before where nobody gets in from the Veterans uh, Committee. But, uh, you know, a different committee were the ones who chose these uh, these final eight players. And this would be a different committee of uh, 16 people. You're talking about baseball historians, uh, I think three writers, four Hall of Famers, four baseball executives. The one thing to remember, too, is that the Baseball Hall of Famers do not want steroid guys in the Hall of Fame. Yep. Uh, there were guys who were talking about boycotting the uh, the event last year, induction ceremony last year, just because David Ortiz got in with anonymous drug test, a uh, positive drug test, uh, you know, back in 2003. So uh, I, I think if, if these guys get in, I think that those Bonds and Clemens will get in one day, but I think it's going to take some time. Uh, I, I think... I think McGriff's the only guy that gets in. I just have a hard time believing that, you know, we're not going to have 12 to 16 voting men if not, you know, if not all 16. Yeah. So you heard it here first. Bob Nightingale believes Fred McGriff will get into the Hall of Fame this year. And, and Bob, we'll find out within the next three weeks post Thanksgiving. Um, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. Before I get you out of here, anything you want to plug at the end? No, just a, uh, you know, covered baseball for a long time. And, uh, and I will say McGriff's one of uh, my favorite guys to ever cover. Just ultimate role model, teammate, a consummate teammate. And uh, a fun guy to cheer for. So I think if McGriff gets in the Hall of Fame, uh, it'll be a you know, wonderful day, you know, next to Lion Cooperstown. 
uh, I'll be there and I'll be writing about it for, <laughs> for USA Today. Awesome. Bob, thanks a lot for coming on. Um, enjoyed talking to you and uh, we'll have to see what happens uh, in the next three weeks. It'll be interesting. All right. My pleasure. Thank you, Jim. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening uh, to the podcast today. Again, I planned, I had planned to come to you with a normal podcast today of a former player. Um, I audible to this the last second, just after seeing all the quote unquote controversy. Again, I, I just, I, I think it's ridiculous, but it's, it, it is what it is. And you don't have to agree with me. I just, this is my personal belief that Roland and McGriff belong in the hall of fame. Uh, Next week, we will actually have something slightly different. I already had it scheduled. I'm going to keep it. Uh, I'm introducing a new episode type that will come along every blue moon. Uh, I'm calling it kind of the Hall of Fame book club. It'll cover a book either coming out or has recently come out that I've read that uh, has to do with sports. And I have a, a football Hall of Fame voter that I've had in the past come on and talk about his new book. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it here, but it's a new book. It's a football book. It's coming out soon. And I had him on to talk about the book itself, the the material it covered. And of course, I trailed into some Hall of Fame conversations about players on the particular team uh, the writer covered. So uh, Hall of Fame book clubs coming out next week. Again, that will come out every, that that kind of episode will come out every blue moon, but want to try it. I love reading. I love sports books. It's a perfect combination. It lets me kind of talk about, you know, certain teams from the past or players from the past that I, I wouldn't get to talk to in our normal kind of, you know, segments I do here. So uh, Pot of Fame Book Club coming next week. Uh, and then there'll be normal episodes coming out for a while then after that. So uh, thank you uh, for listening today. Have a great week. If you don't already, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you listen to podcasts. Uh, for our Substack at Past, Present, Future, just Google Pot of Fame Substack. You're going to find us. Follow us on Twitter at Pot of Fame. If you've done all of that, you've done your homework. Uh, have a great week, and we will talk to you next Monday. Take care.